You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Iris Yamashita was recruited to write the script for Letters from Iwo Jima for Clint Eastwood. The movie was nominated for the Best Original Screenplay for an Oscar. Her new novel is City Under One Roof. Thank you for joining me, Iris. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. Um, You know, you spent a long time in Hollywood guiding stories to the screen. Uh, it's a different format way of telling a story from a novel. I'd like you to talk about how you came about your sense of story that led you first to write the screenplay for Letters from Iwo Jima and then later on to write uh, City Under One Roof. Uh, it's a long story, <laughs> but uh, initially I've always wanted to write novels and uh, I was working full time and taking classes at night at UCLA Extension to write novels, but I could never finish one. Uh, it takes a lot more discipline to write a novel. So I started taking screenwriting classes. And then I found out that, okay, you only have to write about 100 pages with a lot of white space. And then I thought, oh, I can do this. So then I switched over to screenwriting. And uh, I had entered a writing contest um, with this. uh, Since I finished a screenplay, I submitted it to some contests. And then I won a contest. And uh, one of the judges was an agent at uh, Creative Artists Agency, CAA. And that's how I got my um, foot in the door in screenwriting. And uh, through being represented by CAA is how I got this job with Clint Eastwood. Because I they had heard, you know, that he was looking for a writer who had some authenticity in um, Japanese heritage. So, uh, you know, we thought it was a long shot, but uh, my agent submitted um, some of my sample scripts and I had an interview with uh, Paul Haggis, who had uh, written Flags of Our Fathers and who originally, that's who Clint Eastwood approached to write letters from Iwo Jima. But, um, you know, he was very busy. He was doing a lot of different projects and, you know, he also didn't think he had the authenticity. So that's how my name came up because he was also at CAA and I interviewed with him and that's how I got that job. So it was, it was kind of a miracle. It was a miracle job. Um, and, uh, all great, a really great experience. And then, um, it was a little bit hard after that because I became known as the writer who wrote Japanese historicals, which is, wasn't very commercial back then. <laughs> so it's kind of a hard slog since then. And, um, you know, I just I wanted to get my foot 
in the door for something else. And I was thinking something for maybe television or streaming. And um, I just had this idea in the back of my mind for a mystery and this weird, odd place. And I wrote the pilot. But, you know, when you when you're trying to sell a series, you have to come up with the whole uh the, the whole length of the series, you don't have to write it, but you have to think about it and you have to know, um, you know, where the story is going. And if there were to be a season two, what would you do? So I had done so much work putting these ideas together. And I thought, oh, I have enough to write a book here, I think. And so I just started writing the book. It came out wonderfully. And one of the things I have to say is that it doesn't read like a book by somebody who lives in the screenplay world. It's very much a novel written in the written form that speaks, you know, directly to the lizard brain of the reader, which is a, a, a different deal. Now, this book is called City Under One Roof. It's set in the uh, fictional town of Point Metier, Alaska, but based on real time. Tell us about this town, how you came to know about it, and where it is and, and how it you know inspired your the creation in this book yeah i i think i had watched this documentary over 20 years ago because um i remember i was watching a documentary and it was talking about this town in alaska and the only way to reach it was by train by land because they hadn't opened up the tunnel yet until I think 2000. So I had watched this documentary before 2000. And I just thought, wow, that is such a fascinating town where everybody lives in a single building. And, you know, the whole, it's, it's a whole world in there in the, in this one building, but I didn't have a story back then. So it just kind of stuck in the back of my mind as, oh, this is a great setting. And then when I was trying to think of some kind of story, I was thinking of a mystery. I thought, oh, you know, that town, that was such a great town. You know, I think I can set a mystery in there. And I went and I, and I actually visited the town. By then, you know, there was a, you could drive in with a car. And I just remember the tunnel, which is a two and a half mile tunnel and it's very narrow. You can only go in one direction. They switch directions every half hour, I believe. And it was kind of like, I feel like I'm falling through a rabbit hole and I'm going to end up in a strange wonderland full of weird characters. And that was sort of the jumping off point for developing the characters, yeah. You know, it. It one of the things that, was featured in the your movie script were um a lot of the tunnels that they dug under Iwo Jima, which is a famous you know, a famous part of the battle and just the story. So tunnels seem to be in your DNA, writing DNA at least. I had never thought of that until you just mentioned that now. I, I that is true. There's a lot of tunnels. Um I don't know if it's I don't think I have a affinity for tunnels <laughs> just i don't think humans have an affinity for tunnels <laughs> but i think it just happened that way because you know that was the true story that's how it really was in iwo jima and uh that's how the the town that inspired this story whittier they actually do have 
a lot of tunnels. Um, and I had read that back in the day when it was a military base um, in the 50s, that there were tunnels that connected the, um, the buildings together. And so that just like, oh, that is so cool. I mean, I don't think they're usable today, but um, it just inspired thoughts, you know, about, oh, this is very cool. You know, it's so interesting to read about, and you have such a great sensibility, not only for the place, but the people in this place, because it's an isolated place, and you have a certain kind of character who washes up there, so to speak, and also, you know, a lot of some of the existing Native peoples, and the whole mix of characters in this book, which is key to its appeal, it's really interesting. So talk about um, creating these characters who have, you know, ended up in this place and give us a little bit more in-depth of what your city, Point or Point Metier, as a, or Point Metier? I'm not sure. I, I used to live next to Whittier, so. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I think the so in my mind the correct way to say it is point metier, but Americans being Americans will just butcher it and call it point metier. So I have the locals calling it point metier. Okay, well, you know, um, talk about the who the locals are, and you because you tell the story in a really nice way. There's three perspective characters. And they're all very interesting character types. Yes. So um, when I was initially thinking about uh, who would be living here, because that was my question. It's like, who would live here? And I just imagined that there were people who were trying to run away from something or had a secret to hide. And then I read something about... um, someone who was running away from her uh, ex and wouldn't this again this is when the the only way in was by train and the train conductor would not let him in it was sort of like a extra security feature there where you know if you were running from someone then there'd be someone who who kind of filtered who went through (laughs) but uh, I think also as I had mentioned before that idea that uh, it was like a wonderland and full of odd characters, I started to think of um, peppering in a little bit of Alice in Wonderland in this world as well. So we talk about the three characters. The first one, the protagonist, you know, obviously she's the detective. She's like the Alice falling through the hole uh, and ending up in Wonderland. Yes, Kara Kennedy is the protagonist. Um, we have a, a teenager, um, Amy Lynn, whose mother runs the local Chinese restaurant. And I thought of her as sort of the the white rabbit that, uh, you know, the, the detective follows for clues sometimes. Um, and then we have Lonnie, who um, she has a mental disability and she has a pet moose. And she wears a different color beret every day. So she's in in this Wonderland world. She's the Mad Hatter. 
And I have a number of other characters that um, kind of call back uh, Alice in Wonderland characters or Lewis Carroll. Um, you'll have to dig to, you know, I mean, you have to be kind of a, a, a nerd like me, a, a book nerd like me to catch a lot of the references, but it is fun to pepper that in there. That's so interesting. You know, it gives, when you read it, it gives the, the novel, you're reading the structure of your novel, but also you're kind of seeing this uh, other structure reflected in the background and kind of a funhouse mirror, which makes the book really fun. And I think it's important to note that this book is really fun to read, although it's very compelling and you're constantly in the perspective of, the, of these characters in a, a very tense situation, increasing tension all the way through. But it seems to me like you, as the writer, as I was reading this, I was thinking this writer is really having a lot of fun doing this, which also makes it really fun to read. It's an essential part of the reading equation, I think. Yeah, that's what I tell uh, other people is that if I'm having fun while I'm writing the story, then there's more of a chance that the reader probably will also be having fun. If I feel bored while I'm writing, I think, oh, the audience is also going to be bored, so I better spice it up a little. <laughs> so that's how that's how I can gauge, you know, whether something is interesting. If I'm bored, uh, yeah, I better change what I'm writing. One of the plot points that shows up pretty much on the first page, so we're not giving anything away, is the uh, somebody finds body parts, not a whole body, washed up on the shore. Now, I used to belong to something called the Fordian list, which was a mailing list back in the day when they had mailing lists. And one of the topics that would come up on the Fordian list were the body parts uh, feed and and in shoes and sometimes not in shoes that were washing up on the east coast and, and, and in canada and i don't think as far as i know they never figured out exactly what was going on so uh, were you inspired by the real life body parts that were, <laughs> were washing up on the opposite coast oh yes actually i read a lot of articles about uh these right these feet washing up on the west coast so i did oh, not wow. know it was happening on the east coast so that's really interesting um and i was fascinated of course by what would be causing this and you know there were a lot of theories about like maybe it was from the tsunami but this was the west coast so it was in the pacific region that uh, this was happening so they were saying um, maybe they were people from, uh, you know, from the tsunami whose parts were washing up. Uh, all kinds of theories. But I think the one that uh, is consistent and which I mention is, you know, they think that with these days with um, uh, the kind of buoyancy of sneakers that, that when the body decays, they will pop up and then wash up on shore. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's just a, nobody really knows. So it's fun to play with that. One of the things that I think you do really well in this book, uh, sometimes it's called a misdirection, in which is, uh, but I think in your book, it's more 
it's better described as attention focus. You keep our attention focused tightly on what's going on. And so that as readers, we're not maybe asking all the questions we should, but when you give us the answers to the questions that we should have been asking all along, you know, about where did this come from or how is this happening or who, what is this person? What made this person, this person, uh, we go, Oh my, that's great. It's a very satisfying reading experience. So I'd like you to talk about, you know, how you crafted that aspect of the novel. Uh, well, I worked with, um, while I was writing it, um, I do have a writer's group that I like to share. Uh, you know, we all share, our, we're all writers and we're, um, interestingly, we were all screenwriters and now we've all turned to writing books. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but um, so we just share our pages with each other and uh, they would keep me on my toes because they were always asking questions. And then sometimes I didn't have the answer and I thought, oh boy, I better work on having an answer. So I credit my writers group to keeping me on my toes and saying, well, why did you mention this? Is it coming back later? And I might initially think no, but I'll make it come back now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> so yeah, so I think it's it's having an audience um, while I was writing who kept asking questions, which kept me on my toes. Now, this book is set in the Chugash uh, wilderness, which is where uh, Whittier um, Oasaka is, and, and there's a reservation there. So talk about, you know, researching and writing about the the tribe. It's not a giant part of the book, but the way it's done is is has a lot of authenticity in it. I feel like you must have done a lot of research into it that didn't get didn't show up necessarily in the plot of the book, but just in your vision of the overall situation so that it all seems like there's a lot of detail back there that you know if you were to be in the Alice in Wonderland version you could just plunge down that rabbit hole yours if you were uh, you know had the special uh, Blade Runner glasses that could go around the corner oh wow um I one of the reasons why I changed the name of the place and I just I wanted I did want to be able to change some aspects of the geography and the location um but I didn't want it to be unrealistic so I did do some research on you know the actual town and what's around there and is it plausible that you know there is a um a, a native village nearby and I saw that it was possible but um I did have leeway to change some of the, you know, some of the aspects uh, so that it didn't match up exactly. And then I could, I could make the setting work for me in the way I wanted it to. Um, and yes, I did learn a lot about um, uh, Alaska natives, which um, is actually different from the lower 48. They don't have, uh, they, they didn't set up their um, 
native land as reservations. They have different kinds of rules and and the rules also change a lot through the years. So <laughs> it was kind of, it was difficult because I thought one thing about when it was established, the rules, and then they changed. And then someone pointed that out to me that, oh, that's changed. And like, oh, oh boy, I got to look, you know, in more recent history, what are the rules? So um, that aspect was a little difficult. Now, uh, the characters you create are, are really interesting. And, and I, I love the, the singer. <laughs> so tell us about creating this singer who has, there's one scene in there that we'll talk a little bit about, which because it, it doesn't give away too much of the plot. So, but tell us about creating this singer who lives there. You know, I, I don't even remember why I was looking up um, something about jazz tunes <laughs> on YouTube. And then uh, there was a video that popped up of a, a woman who is kind of the way I describe her, who is singing in Japanese and singing this jazz tune. And yeah, she was an older woman who was trying to be sexy. And I thought, oh, this is a really interesting character. And so I just kind of threw her in there. And I'm sure a lot of it is uh, uh, inspired by David Lynch. And, you know, I loved Twin Peaks. And um, so it just seemed to fit in that kind of Lynch Lynchian world. I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> it just seemed to fit. So I stuck her in there. You know, that that is absolutely perfect. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it being a kind of David Lynch type world, but it really is. And because that there's one scene where she's having a game, having a birthday party for herself. And I just thought, this is creepy as all heck. <laughs> it was like a scene from a horror movie or something. But, you know, it, and it was nice the way you created it because you kind of slide into it. And the further you go, the creepier it gets. <laughs> and I thought that, you know, this ability to move, create different worlds within the world of the city under one roof was, you know, essential to the, the story. So so talk about, you know, the the various rabbit holes within the rabbit hole. Well, you know, it 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 also comes from having to think of the backstory of each of the characters and why they're there. And so, um, you know, uh, when I, again, when I pass this to my writers group and they all loved this character and I'm like, oh, I got to put, her in there more and it was trying to think of what you know how do I tell some backstory and make it interesting and make it fun and make it creepy all at once so <laughs> that was just and there's a little bit of Alice in Wonderland reference as well so um there's a hint for you <laughs> one of the characters I thought and worked really well in terms of the mystery sensibility was uh, the police chief, Chief uh, Sipley, because, you know, he, you just don't know about him. I'm reading about him, and I'm on the fence as to where he is in the moral spectrum. And I think this idea of being where, where characters are in the moral spectrum in this place that's 
something of a moral vacuum because everybody, there's, you know, they're all crammed in so close. So talk about creating, you know, uh, you have a, a police force of two people. <laughs> that That's an interesting limitation you have for a, a mystery novel. Yeah, um, I when I visited the inspiration, there are actually a lot more police, but I just, I had imagined they couldn't have a lot of police there. Um, so I just uh, whittled it down. Um, and um, I think, yeah, that this being a mystery, um, you know, most of the characters have to have a kind of a spectrum, like you, you don't know where they are morally, so they could potentially be suspects. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, you have to think of, okay, what's the backstory so that they're just not, uh, you know, they don't look suspicious just for the sake of them looking suspicious. You do have to come up with reasons and backstories about, you know, why they're acting the way they are. The backstories are really important in this novel. So I think, you know, more so than I think other uh, books I've read. So talk about using the backstory in a mystery novel. Yeah, I think that's um, what I had originally set out to do was that um, the characters needed to be interesting and I didn't want to just make uh, a whodunit um, for the sake of just, okay, you know, this is a clue game and blah, blah, blah. You, I, I wanted to, um, delve deeper into the characters and make them interesting and, um, and the voices, uh, the, so I have the, I have the three voices that are telling the story. And one thing I learned in screenwriting is, um, a good test of character is if you say, if you pull a line of dialogue and you don't say who is speaking, but you can, you know, who's speaking, that's, um, that shows that you're, you know, you've written a well-written character. So that's what I kind of imagine too, that I, I would try to make characters that stand out that, um, you know, their voice when you hear it and, to, and and to do that right, you do a lot of times. You have to really think about who are they, what's their story, where are they coming from, what are their motivations, etc. As a reader, you know I really noticed that you are doing that both with Lonnie and with Amy. They each have a verbal kind of text. Lonnie has, is pretty much all tick, <laughs> <laughs> but Amy also has some kind of interesting verbal ticks that you can see and you read and you go, okay, you know, that's her talking. So, uh, did you, did these fall off the tip of your pen in the first draft or did it, <laughs> did they? No. <laughs> well, Lonnie did. Mm -hmm. Lonnie, I had kind of in my mind already her voice when I started writing, but Amy, was a little boring when I started. Um, 
And again, I started off with sharing this with my writers group and they're like, well, you know, I, I don't know if her voice comes through. So it really made me think like, okay, she's a teenager. How do teenagers talk? You know, there there's a sort of cadence where they talk really quick and they kind of just, sometimes you don't know what they're saying because <laughs> they go, they talk really fast and they use acronyms and they do things. And so I thought, okay, I need to, put that in somehow. Um, and so that's how I came up with the way that she talks, where it's all kind of like run run on sentences and just, you know, just kind of, I imagine her talking quickly. Uh, now, Lonnie is a, such a wonderful character. <laughs> you have a lot of fun with her, but you also, you know, she seems a little bit menacing too. And I think you do a great job of balancing the menacing aspects you know her obvious uh, sp location on the spectrum, as as we say, um, and the her you know amusing aspects. And gosh, I just love Danny. He was a great character, all in and all of himself. I want a pet moose too, but I just don't <laughs> think that that would work in Santa Cruz. Yeah. So Danny is the moose, the name of her moose. Um, yeah, I I thought she was um, she was fun to write, but very difficult mm. to write for sure. Um, A lot and, of discipline in the writing, I thought. Really, like you were hyper focused, and it keeps the reader hyper focused too. Yeah, I could only write very short chapters on Lonnie because it took a lot, actually, um, because they're sort of she has sort of a rhythm and she, you know, moves from topic to topic and you want them somehow to, to relate. I mean, even though she's jumping from subject to subject to the transitions had to be smooth uh, using, you know, play on words or um, rhymes or, you know, she, she quotes nursery rhymes. So it was, it was very difficult and I could only do short chapters of Lonnie, but I would say they were enjoyable. They were definitely enjoyable. And, you know, it was something I had imagined from the get go that she would be talking almost in riddles or, you know, like poems or, you know, just, just to have a very unique way of talking. Well, in the test that you give, talked about giving yourself, you could take almost any sentence from Lonnie's chapters out of this book and put them in front of me now and say, oh, that's Lonnie from Iris's book. <laughs> so, Great. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to hear. <laughs> uh, we, we also have uh, uh, a fellow, uh, Joe Barkowski. And, you know, when we read books, um, well, it's like we make a little movie in our minds. We really can't help that, I think, and that's part of the pleasure of reading a book is that you, you, the writer, provide the screenplay, and we, the reader, provide you know make up the actors and do the art direction based on your wonderful suggestions. Um, and and Joe Barkowski, I mean, he must be he was played in my my movie by David Harbour from Stranger Things. And I thought that, you know, you, you just did a good job of capturing this kind of good-natured character. But again, like most humans, he has a moral spectrum that 
bigger than just good natured. Yeah. Um, again, everybody is a is a suspect at some point. <laughs> Uh, that takes a hard, that's a hard guessing. writing task to, to do that, but I think you do accomplish it quite well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, interestingly, I I don't, because I come from the screenwriting uh, side, I that was a little bit difficult for me to describe people in the novel because when you write a screenplay, you don't know who's going to get cast and you don't want to be so specific on how they look or, you know, what mannerisms they have uh, because you don't really know who, who's going to end up playing this person. Um, so when I transitioned to writing this novel, I initially, I didn't even describe the protagonist <laughs> because I wasn't used to describing people on the page and uh and then they were coming up with a cover and the artist wanted to know what the um what the protagonist looked like because she might have been made the cover she didn't make the cover but um then I thought oh boy I never described her once and then I was so I went back in and I wrote a description but um no one I mean I hadn't noticed and my editor hadn't noticed until until the artist mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I, so let's talk about this protagonist, Kara Kennedy. Uh, she's a, a police officer and she's on the scene, kind of puts herself, inserts herself into the investigation. And I think you do a really good job at, you know, keeping us focused on what she's doing in the moment and how she's trying to solve exactly what's happened here. And I think that that's, a, you know, a really nicely plotted part of the mystery. I, so talk about, you know, as I think most mysteries, even back to the, you know, the old Sherlock Holmes mystery, you are always <clears throat> often introduced to uh, more than one, one crime, and they at first seemed totally disconnected and, and but eventually often but not always you know they'll they'll resolve into being connected or the you know the same protagonist solves both crimes so talk, talk about Kara uh, Kennedy and you know keeping her focused on what's happening in front of her which is fairly terrifying and somewhat threatening yeah, um, I think, well, she has her own motives for for being there. So the protagonist also has some secrets. And um, I think originally it starts out, she's trying, she has her own motives for trying to solve this crime. But when, when she realizes that the town is in danger possibly then her sort of altruism kicks in and it's like oh well you know we have to protect the the kids you know it's it's sort of her being a mother having you know she was a mother so that's her sort of natural instinct also i believe and that's that's how i thought of her character you know one thing about this town in the setting is it, it's very intense setting, claustrophobic t 
tunnels going outside is really dangerous. And I have to say that, you know, the whole atmosphere felt very much like the spaceship in Alien, where they're always kind of inside. There's not very many people. You don't know who's doing what or why. So, so talk about creating this claustrophobic and kind of drippy setting. I always have a feeling like, you know, there's stuff running down the walls. You don't know what. Is it melting ice? Is it goo? Is it grease from the boiler? Who knows? It, it seems like a fairly, uh, you know, a good good setting for a horror story. And there's a, a bit of that feel in it. Yeah, I, I kind of thought of the um, the setting as almost like a character. Oh, exactly. So, yeah, I when I originally thought of this idea and I had remembered this place in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, that the setting is going to do a lot of the work for me, you know, to make the atmosphere, to um, provide sort of the the scares and the thrills, um, just, just being this kind of building. <laughs> and I had, I think I had also, um, when I was doing my research, I had read about how, uh, you know, the way I, I put it in the book, but there's a description of how the building creaks with the wind and I was, oh, that is perfect. You know, that's, that's the kind of setting you want where and it really does that with this this building that you know makes noises so it is almost like it's alive you know, the building is alive it's a you know the classic in a sense is i guess uh fits into the gothic genre perfectly you know you'll have a, a doomed heroine with a with a, a a dark past in a one giant building where she's under threat from someone or something, uh, are you well versed in the gothics? No, and um, you know, I well, I I, I can't. I mean, I I have read uh, books in the past, but with that kind of setting, but um, I also had never thought of a mystery before or even you know read a lot of mysteries so it's all kind of just <laughs> i don't know what it was that attracted me but um but i found it was really fun once that once i started writing this you know um the 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 characters in this book the way the way they interact um it, it is you know, interesting because it's influenced by, as you said, the character around them. So maybe you should describe to us, like, how the setting influenced, you know, the characters both logically, you know, as anybody in this kind of trapped, claustrophobic setting would, would react to it, but also, you know, how you made use of that in terms of, like, the the plot, because, you know, there's parts of the plot where, you know, they're in tunnels and, and places, you know, weird gooey places that would only exist in this character's slash setting. Uh, yeah, I think um, when I was thinking of this community, because, they're, you know, the idea that 
you're living, everybody's living in this building. So they all, um, they can love each other. They can hate each other, but they do definitely depend on each other. Um, and then I also was thinking that maybe the adults have a much different feel for the place than the, than the kids. I mean, <laughs> there's not much to do when you live in a, in one building and, you know, and you're a teen and, you know, what do you do for fun? And I did ask a local who was on the younger side, um, you know, <laughs> what do you do for fun here? And he said, churches and bonfires. So, you know, I that kind of gave me an idea of what it was, you know, what, what it was like to live there. And um, that, the that yes, the kids must have a much different feel for it than, um, you know, the reasons that the, the parents might have chosen to move there and how they might feel about it and, you know, why they might live in this building. But yeah, definitely, again, the, the whole idea that this building um, is a character and then how the, the characters react to this character, very different. Did you make a map of the building for your writing? Or did you just imagine it? Well, uh, I, as I said, I, I had actually been there. So I um, I did know kind of what the layout of the building was in the town. Um, but again, because it's, it's inspired by this town, I did, um, I, I did make up some geography. Uh, so um, I didn't, actually draw a map, but I did have to think about it in my mind, especially when we go underground. Now, one of the things I think you do super well in this book is, as they say, you stick the landing. It's just an absolute, when you finish up the last word of this book, you're just smiling like a big old goofy reader who just read, read a super outstanding ending book so first off have you started on your next book yes i have um i have to turn it in next month <laughs> so, <laughs> so i'm busily trying to finish that one but yes um uh, can you tell us much about it um i'll just say that you'll see some of the old characters and you'll you'll also be introduced to some new characters that sounds super outstanding to me. I cannot wait to read it. Now, also, well, nobody as I've spoken to recently is better connected to Hollywood screenwriting than you. Uh, and I can usually see this as a, as a streaming service kind of offering since, you know, we no longer have to condense a 400-page novel into a two-hour movie unless you're writing it tasked with writing the adaptation of Dune. So. <laughs> so, uh, are you working on a screenplay for this? Uh, so, we are um, fielding inquiries from mm -hmm. interested producers. Um, I don't know quite where we're at because, um, yeah, there's someone, uh, an agent who is, you know, to getting the calls or whatever and i i don't know what the status is um so we'll we'll see <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I'd like you to talk about when you're writing a novel, um, you're also, most of the time, doing something else to earn money since writing a novel is, you know, kind of like writing a wish on a piece of paper. Maybe it'll come true. Maybe it won't. Uh, talk about, you know, everyday life, um, getting through each day, and, you know, li living in, in um, the valley? Right. Yes. Okay. Yes, the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, San Gabriel Valley. Um, and also, you know, spending half or more of your mental time in, in an isolated city in Alaska. Well, I am still working in Hollywood, so I do um, still get paid to write uh, screenplays or teleplays. And um, the hard part is actually getting those things produced. So I have learned to just be happy with um, getting the jobs. And then what happens after that? <laughs> it's out of my hands. So I don't write about it too much. Um, so I will say that, uh, you know, again, being the Asian writer, it's been, it was really hard in the beginning. But recently, um, there's been more interest in diverse stories. So I've gotten more jobs writing uh, writing for Hollywood. Um, and so the book one was very hard because you're juggling a number of things. And um, it, it's hard to keep focused. But I did get a contract to write book one. So then... <laughs> <laughs> really motivated me to finish it. Um, and then after that, I started just saying no to a lot of the Hollywood things. Um, and it felt nice, actually, to be able to say no to things that I, I wasn't that interested in. I mean, I'm still doing some work over there on things that are interesting to me. Um, but being able to say, to say no has really freed up some time <laughs> and let me focus on um, this because knowing that there's a book two and um, you know I already had book one out now and so that really motivated me again to to keep going with book two but um, yeah I spend uh, maybe uh, like four or five hours now a day um, writing on uh, the novel. And uh, it's really great during holidays because no one's calling you for meetings and so on and so forth. And and again, um, I've cleared a lot of my schedule by saying no to a lot of things. So, yeah. I'm guessing if you're almost done with book two, you must be looking out further than that. Yes, yeah, so I'm trying to think of what what the follow-up is and um i haven't i have an idea but i haven't really honed in on it yet so we'll see it is a, it's a it is a little kind of it, it does make me feel a little nervous like not having uh, a story set to to be the you know what comes after this did it, completing the first novel and selling it and having it reach this point where it's coming out, and I know it's getting some acclaim, it's well-deserved. Did that change your 
approach on the follow-up novels? Did it give you more confidence? Did it change your procedure? You know, do you still like uh, let the ideas rain down on the page in the same manner? Well, you know, most of book two had to be thought of and outlined and mostly written before I got any feedback on book one. So by the time I got feedback on book one, um, I think it was a little too late to change what was going to happen in book two, but it did make me feel like, oh no, you know, like <laughs> it's not going to live up to, to the first one. Uh, and it, you know, <laughs> I think you're just, as a writer, you're always like stressed about, oh, what are they going to think of this one? Oh, no. You know, so, uh, but then uh, at some point you have to kind of let it go because otherwise you'll just be frozen, you know, like you, you'll you never get anything done if, you, if you're always worrying about things. So you just have to let it go. You know, um, in this book, you have some interesting antagonists. Uh, so talk a little bit of, about, you know, the, the, uh, the drug world that, I mean, drugs are everywhere, even in the most isolated part of America, you could, anyone could possibly, probably actually not imagine. Yeah. Um, I had done a little bit of research about Alaska and, Amazingly, um, there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of drugs passing through Alaska, and they can uh, charge a premium because just like with everything else, you know, Alaska is kind of remote, so it co everything costs a little more, including drugs apparently. So there are a lot of uh, people, even from Mexico, dealing in Alaska. Um, but uh, so you know that is that is kind of just a fact of Alaska. But um, uh, there's going to be a little bit more than just that. <laughs> it's just a hint. <laughs> I look forward to uh, reading it. I have been speaking with Iris Mashta. Her new novel is City Under One Roof. Thank you for joining me, Iris. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.